This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. What do Levi Strauss, Tyson Foods, Walmart, and Patagonia have in common? They are among hundreds of companies giving employees paid time off to vote in the midterm elections. We're just one week away from what is arguably one of the more important elections in recent history. But midterms tend to have very low voter turnout without a big name on the ticket like in the years that a president is being decided. With many companies making it easier for their employees to get to the ballot boxes, could this be a turning point for elections? And why are these businesses, big and small, taking a more active role in getting out the vote? Eric Ortz, professor of legal studies and business ethics here at the Wharton School, as well as director of the initiative for a global environmental leadership. Joining me in studio and on the phone is Merrick Masters, who's director of the Labor at Wayne Initiative, as well as professor of management and adjunct professor of political science at Wayne State University. Eric, good seeing you again. Thank you for coming on. Great to be here. Merrick, great to have you with us today. Uh, Nice having me. Thank you. Thank you. So, Eric, what are your thoughts of, of this move by companies in general? Well, I think it's very encouraging. So uh, there's a movement uh, recently among business scholars to recognize what's been called political responsibility as part of what has uh, traditionally been thought of as corporate social responsibility. And the basic and the question is, um, the, you know, one article cite on that is a colleague of my, uh, uh, Tom Lyon at Michigan, uh, Magalie Delmas at UCLA, and some others uh, have a piece in the California Manager Review on this. So I think one of the interesting questions, though, is then how, what are the limits of that? How do you actually accomplish that? Right. And one of the big questions that we have now on the agenda is that many people uh, find that they don't have time to go vote, or they have, they're holding down two or three jobs. And so um, it's difficult to find the time. And then particularly in some big states like New York and here in Pennsylvania, we still have voting only on one day. In some right. states, it's easier. Several states have uh, vote by mail now. Yep. Some states have early voting. And in those states, it's a little bit easier, although companies can still encourage people to exercise their right to vote. But in some states, it's still really difficult, and people have a hard time either finding the time or getting the transportation. <clears throat> and that's where businesses are now stepping in, and they're saying, well, we believe in democracy. We think democracy is important. And whether you agree with commentators and right. who say democracy is, an, is really seriously threatened right now, I think everyone can agree that a right to vote is an important is important to support, and if you see that you're uh, if you accept the arguments that it's difficult to vote uh, for many people, then companies are stepping up and saying, "Look, we're going to give you uh, paid time to go and vote." In a lot of cases, it takes one hour, two hours, and then you also have uh, interesting um, development where companies like Uber and Lyft are actually partnering with nonprofits trying to get the vote out. And they're either getting a heavy discount to go vote to, and and in, in Uber's case, I think you can even have there's even a link uh, to the to get to the polls, and it will give you a your your polling place, right, and then it right. will also give you a discount, or you work uh, if it, if you're low income, it, sometimes it can be for free. So so then uh, companies also can then play a role by telling their employees if they have excuses like that, it you know, here is opportunities and give yeah. out the word. To not only encourage people to get out and vote, but then let them know there are resources for them to get to the polls. Merrick, what are your thoughts on this? And and with you being there in Michigan, are are you seeing some of these initiatives coming forward with companies there? 
Well, in Michigan, you have a situation here where you have several large unionized firms which essentially declare a holiday for people on Election Day. And you also, as is true in many states, have um, a lot of teacher collective bargaining contracts which declare it as a holiday. So none of the public schools is in session today in Michigan. And uh, I think um, in, in general... Um, you're seeing a movement to try and liberalize the policies in companies with regard to allowing people to vote. And that's a good thing. Anything that we can do to encourage participation um, is a helpful step in the right direction. And I agree with what the professor said. I mean, there's an element to political responsibility to this, uh, as well as social responsibility, in that companies are, are taking a public stance. Mm-hmm. They're not just doing this quietly. Uh, they're being quite vocal about it, and, and Uber and Lyft, for example, and giving a $20 um, discount or a 45% discount are examples of that. We asked this, uh, Eric and I talked about this before we started, Merrick, so I'll, th- I'll throw this to you. Uh, should then now we start to consider making Election Day a national holiday in general? If we have a lot of these elements, schools, some businesses, uh, you mentioned unions uh, basically making this a holiday for those employees, should we make this across the board? Well, I think that that's something that we should give serious thought to. The devil's in the detail. Um, if you make it a national holiday, but businesses still stay open, for example, and you have federal employees and state employees and a variety of other employees not working but using these retail outlets, it could be that some people are expected to work longer hours um, during that time period, and it could make, actually make it harder for them to vote, and they are tend to be uh, lower-income people. So I think it's how you design it um, and what companies that do decide to stay open do to allow their employees to facilitate uh, the process of making it easier for them. But I think there's another element to it that needs to be considered in in that uh, we could also make it easier for people to register. Those who are registered to vote have a much higher turnout. Uh, You can really look at, you know, voting population statistics in a couple of ways. You can look at it in terms of the percentage of registered voters who turn out, the percentage of citizens who turn out, and the percentage of a a voting age population that turn out. And it's close to 90 percent when you look at the percentage of registered voters who actually turn out. Uh, We have a large number. We only have about 64 percent of our voting age population that is registered to vote. 844-WHARTON is the number if you would like to join in, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at Dan Loney, L-O-N-E-Y-21. Now, I, I, I do want to, we mentioned something also before we went on the air, it's the fact that while these companies are, are making these offers, this is different than what we've seen a couple of instances with unions where not only are they telling their employees, their union members, to go out and vote, they're actually telling them who to vote for. So this is something that is is much different than that. Correct, Eric? 
Yeah. Uh, well, I think I think that's right. I mean, there is a there's a question of uh, both on the union side, but also the company side on what the expectations are. So, um, and it's often implicit if you look at the company side that uh, a CEO or, or companies will will be active. So it's not the case that they will not be. Uh, they might not openly endorse a candidate, but they're active in contributions to political action committees and in lobbying, et cetera, uh, yep. in the political process. So one question that comes up here is that it's pretty clear now that companies can be, the, in fact, they have a constitutional right and a, and, a, and a statutory right to be involved in politics under Citizens United and Hobby Lobby. Then the question is, how can they do that? And uh, my own view is that I think in many cases it makes sense for a company to say, uh, and Patagonia recently has taken a, a stand on this. That Patagonia has explicitly endorsed as a company John Tester of Man Montana and Jackie Rosen in Nevada. Uh, but at the same time, I think I would argue that when a company does that, that's more transparent than maybe giving money, dark money sure. to somebody yeah. and, and implicitly – uh, the CEO is in favor of somebody, and then he has a fundraiser. He or she has a fundraiser and invites everyone else at the top level, and you kind of feel coerced, even if it's not said to be coerced. Maybe sometimes the same thing can happen in unions. I think we do have to be clear that a company should take a position. It, it, it may take a position as a company politically, but then in these get out the vote and encouraging to vote operations, you really should be clear that it's the employee's right to decide who you're yep. voting for. You, you can't dictate or should not at least dictate, uh, you're, hey, we're going to give you leave to vote, but don't forget, vote for X. Uh, yeah. vote, vote either blue or red when you're going out there. Companies really should be nonpartisan in the sense of generally, ex and, and unions too, I, I, in my view, encouraging people to vote without dictating exactly how they're going to vote once they get to the polls. Merrick? Well, it, it, it's a much different situation when you have unions. Unions are not the employers. Uh, so they don't have direct authority over the employees, so it's a little bit of a different situation in that regard. But also unions are distinctly partisan, uh, and they will have endorsed candidates at all levels of government and gone through a, a rather cumbersome process to do it. I not only know that as an academic study in it, I've also been a candidate for Congress and involved in politics at many levels and worked with unions on endorsements and gotten uh, union endorsements and union money yeah. in the process of running for office. So I, I think the notion that they're going to be nonpartisan is probably not realistic. Um, and I think that they would view that as a fundamental infringement on their freedom of speech. At the same time, I think they need to be transparent about it. And it's important to remember that unions are smart enough to know that they don't tell union members who to vote for. Uh, they they do a lot of political education and encourage people to vote a certain way. But one of the most fundamental mistakes they can make, and there's survey research going back a long time on this, is for them to be too heavy-handed about it. That can backfire on them. And they can, um, uh, you know, take all sorts of actions internally within the union to uh, defeat their leadership and running for re-election if they're too uh, heavy-handed about how they approach um, political activity. So they have a delicate balance to draw. Um, but I would say the distinguishing factor between unions and the, the companies is that the companies are the employer. The unions are not. 
You know, I, I find it interesting, Merrick, and if you go back, I guess, what, about 30, 35 years, we've had various get-out-the-vote campaigns through media outlets. I remember years ago, you know, MTV, when it was at its height, uh, they had a, a get-out-the-vote campaign. Yet traditionally, we have seen, and, and midterms maybe more so than, than presidential elections, significantly low voter turnout in, in general. So... We've had all of these campaigns that really haven't done what they had hoped to do. Now maybe it's it's in the laps of some of these companies that they're taking their next uh, their turn to try and see if they can get something done. I, I think they're trying to encourage things, um, but I think it's important to remember when you look at these statistics historically, and I'm looking at some of them right now. If you go back, for example, just take 1960 to 1970. Uh, in the midterm elections, you had close to 50% voting. But after we lowered the voting age to 18, uh, you see a significant drop in the percentage voting in presidential elections and in midterm elections. So uh, uh, a number of things have occurred, not only just the change in the voting age, but yeah. to discourage participation. But I think it's also important to remember that we have a rising Hispanic population, and turnout among Hispanics is about 47 percent. Uh, it's the lowest among the minority groups by far. And so we need to do more in terms of outreach to get um, younger people to the polls uh, and to get uh, minorities to the polls um, so that we have uh, higher levels of participation. And in some cases, with respect to those that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, uh, voting is a real struggle. I mean, if you don't have transportation, you know, in Detroit here, um, there are a number of people that just do not have means of transportation. Getting to the polls can be challenging if they're working. Uh, it can be even more challenging. Uh, and, um, you know, I noticed that in some surveys that have been done, people, the reasons why they get for not voting, being too busy, having to, to work, uh, those factors also apply to higher income people as well as um, people of lower income status. So it, it cuts across socioeconomic classes, uh, the difficulty in finding time uh, to, to vote. So I think what companies are doing in terms of paid time off, encouraging, finding ways of transportation, uh, those things are all a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. just to pick up on that, I think it's absolutely right to, to highlight the problem with uh, younger people getting to the polls, and that's uh, I think that's cutting across lots of different uh, lots of different other divisions. So I think the current statistics are only about one in five millennials or younger are going to the polls. Yeah. So one thing to point out to them is that if you don't if you don't vote, the older people are basically going to choose who is running the country. So that's yeah. one. Uh, uh, and I think for them, it's also true they're very busy. They're building careers. They're you know going. You know, they I think they generally uh, probably have more. Uh, busy social lives and, and demands on them from school and from work, et cetera. So they, you really, re they really do need uh, some sort of encouragement. I just want to put in one other comparison: is that today, uh, if you make a comparison of the United States with other countries, we are pretty low. So of, yeah. of the 25 biggest democracies, we rate about 20th in voter participation. And then, if you look, and this goes back to our point before, if you look at the top 12. 
11 of those have either weekend voting or a, a national holiday yeah. as, as incorporated into it. So there are reforms that way. But I think that just highlights it for the moment right now when we're having an election next week. Um, it really would be helpful for other companies and businesses to consider making it easier for employees to vote. Let them have an hour or two hours if they need it to go do that. Uh, the word I don't think has spread as widely to small businesses where most employees in this country actually exist. Right. So to the extent that uh, the word can be spread to those companies to look, really consider just allowing, uh, having some flexibility. One or two hours off of work is really not going to kill you in a, if you're talking about uh, a two-year or four-year cycle of elections. And uh, I think that could really make a difference. The, the trick, Merrick, with, it, with, that, uh, with that idea with the, the one to two hours getting off, and I mentioned this with Eric before we went on is the fact that with some people, and I'll use Philadelphia as an example, if you have somebody that lives in the suburbs yet comes to work in downtown Philadelphia, one to two hours is really not going to do them enough, is not going to give them enough time to be able to leave work, go home, do the voting, and then come back. And so, and and that's where, that's where your voting district may end up hampering you a little bit. Well, that's that's true. Just one quick comment on that uh, is that the, you could also do some flex time, right? You could say, that, okay, yeah. come yeah. in later. Yeah. I recognize there might be lines late yep. or yep. let people go early. Or the other thing to mention here, and this con- uh, uh, connects up with uh, Mark's point earlier, a lot, a lot of cities also offer free bus transportation on polling sure. days. Yeah. So that's another way to address the lower income transportation problem. I, I, I believe Philadelphia did that in the last election. I don't know about this coming election, but I think other cities have already committed to free bus service on election day. You know, it's not that big of a cost and you get uh, you, you it's, it's a public service to to allow people to get to the polls without additional expense. Merrick? I'd like to comment on that and then make a broader point. Um, I, I agree with everything the professor said. I think also that we could do things like uh, encourage uh, voting by mail. A couple yeah. of states do that automatically. Right. We could experiment with voting by the Internet. We could also allow for um, early voting. A number of states have that. So all of those things, I think, would uh, you know give people the option um, in Michigan, we have several initiatives on the ballot um, this fall with regard to changing our election laws and uh, automatic registration when you um, when you get your um, <clears throat> driver's license is another thing to consider. I think mm-hmm. millennials a lot of times, you know, it, it's they don't have they can register uh, at the uh, motor vehicle department when they get their driver's license, but it's not on the presence of their mind uh, when, when they you know they're not thinking about that when they get their driver's license. Uh, but um, the broader point I'd like to, to to make is that you know when you look at uh, people not participating, I think there's something to consider in that. Um, uh, I think there's a lot of disaffection with the political system, with politics, uh, with politicians. Um, yeah. We have low confidence in government. Uh, and I, I think all of those things contribute to a sense on the part of some that it's just not worth it. 
Uh, and no matter who you vote for, things don't change. Right. And so I think in term, in, in, until our political system, I think, becomes more, I use the term responsible in terms of trying to address the problems that we have uh, seriously, that uh, you're going to see a, a portion of the population just saying it's not worth it. And, and that, to me, is a, as much a concern as anything else. Um, I don't know what percentage of the population that is, but historically in the United States compared to other countries, we've always had pretty low participation rates. Yeah. Uh, even in 1960, when you had the highest participation rate in a presidential election, that was still only 63 percent. Well, I think that's right, but I guess I'd like to push back a little bit on the idea. It's true that there's a lot of feeling of uh, voter disaffection. I think that that's been pushed somewhat by partisan politics where a lot of people are in there and sometimes it's even I think that was partly uh, there, there's been uh, there's been various kinds of movements including even by the by the Russian interference to try to uh, encourage people to be apathetic or un, or so unhappy that they won't vote and at least I think the message should be put out there that if you don't vote then it doesn't you know that you don't really have an excuse to then complain about uh, an outcome and that and, and if and I think in the last couple elections at least it's been pretty clear that it matters who uh, is in power in one way or another. It might not meet all of your uh, desires, and maybe a reason for younger people not to vote is that they have a long list of things that they want, and if those are not, they don't feel that those are 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 are. are our answer. But one other point, I guess I'm totally in favor of what has been said about voting by mail. I think three states now have that, and that makes sense in terms of getting the vote. I'm also totally in favor of automatic registration. I believe Oregon has put that in place a couple of years ago, and that that makes sense uh, to follow. But I guess I just raised one question about voting by internet. That worries me because there have been a lot of examples of hacking, and most studies indicate that the best way to prevent any kind of <coughs> miscounting or rigging of voting, instead, et cetera, is to have a paper record in some sense. Right. So voting by mail meets that criteria, having having uh, having some kind of paper record in the so that that's another bigger issue. But I would just I would just ha throw up a word of caution about the Internet voting by Internet, just because we've had a lot of problems with with hacking and other kinds of things. So it would be hard to track if you would move to an Internet based voting system. Merrick. We're going to have to do a lot of things to protect the integrity of our election uh, systems um, and whatever technology we use to ensure there isn't fraud or miscounting or deliberate distortion, as you know, the recent incidents uh, associated with Russian interference are obviously very disturbing. Uh, so all of those things need to be factored into um, what we do going forward in the future, and that's going to take some money, some investment. Uh, we can invest in technology to improve the accuracy of counting and the assurance that there's not tampering with any of the technology, whatever that might be, that, that's being used. Um, I'm not saying that um, when I said that I, disaffection may cause people not to vote, I'm not saying that's a good excuse. Right. Uh, I'm saying that um, I think that's a reality. Um, you know, when you go out and you talk to people and you ask them why they don't vote or why they don't think, a lot of times they just tell you that it doesn't matter, it's not worth it. 
Um, and that goes to the old problem of, you know, collective action and participation in any kind of situation where there's a public good involved. Um, so you really do, I think, as the professor said, you do have to impress upon people continually that their vote does matter and that if you don't participate, by default, you're turning uh, your voice over to somebody else. Uh, and so there are consequences to that as you know, politicians who are smart about politics realize this is ultimately about acquiring power. It's not electing good candidates, although that's important, but you're electing people to occupy offices that hold considerable amount of power. And you need to pay attention to that because uh, there are consequences to whom you elect. What about the role, America, uh, of social media in this? Because we've talked about, obviously, a lot of these uh, traditional uh, retailers and other companies that are that are playing a role in this. Social media, obviously, in this day and age, is playing or trying to play more and more a role. Uh, Snapchat was mentioned about sending out reminders. People can get reminders through Snapchat about voting. Uh, they've had a few hundred thousand of those. Uh, Facebook has obviously uh, done a little bit of this in, in recent years as well. Social media is probably a, a, as big a component today to reach so many people more so than, than any other oh, avenue. It, it's, it's a huge thing, and I think, you know, if President, understands certain, <clears throat> President Trump understands certain things, he understands social media. Whether he uses it wisely or not is another question, but right. he understands the importance of it. And uh, a lot of people get their news primarily. Uh, in fact, I just wrote an article on um, how people get their news and the role of media. Uh, and they get a lot of their news, uh, a lot of their information from social media. And as a result of that, um, I think that sometimes the distinction that they make between what comes out of social media and actual news is blurred. Yeah, uh, and there's a lot of effort to, you know, you hear all this talk about fake news and that kind of stuff to, mm -hmm. to, to blur it even further. So um, I think to the extent that people don't rely on multiple sources of information, uh, they can be swayed by social media. Uh, and this occurs not just in, um, in election voting, but in other types of voting. For example, there was a campaign here recently uh, ratifying a UAW contract in which the Chrysler voters voted it down. And that was done primarily, you know, studies have indicated, because of social media. What was put out about the contract on social media, whether it was reflective of reality or not, yeah. uh, it dominated the story. Yeah, yeah, just to pick up on that uh, quickly, the uh, on, on social media, one thing that has been dri driven by social media is higher registrations. So that's already starting to hit this election cycle, a lot of social media companies have realized that voting is important and that they have been misused, actually, in the voting process. And that's the other main point I'd like to highlight is that we know from uh, the, Mueller, uh, the Mueller indictments and from other studies, uh, including one recently um, by Kathleen Hall-Jamison here called Cyber War, that the Russians are very active again, as they were before, in terms of using what's called fake news, uh, using basically false uh, propaganda information yep. and, and pretending that they're someone else than they are on, on social media. So there's a lot of attempts now by Facebook 
uh, YouTube and others to police this. But I would just caution people when they are engaged in social media now to really be careful when you are seeing a news item or some other kind of claim of a, that, 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 that's outrageous that might that – might, especially if it inflames your passions about something. Yeah. That could very well be a, a, constructed, uh, a constructed story that doesn't have any basis in truth. So it's really important to go to standard sources like Snopes, uh, uh, factcheck.com to check these things. And then also to rely on us on on establish what else I, I'm a fa- I'm a fan of established media and academic yeah. uh, sources that are more reliable for their truth content. New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Washington, Wall Street Journal, etc., wh- who have. Uh, the truth as a value yeah. uh, when they're doing their reporting. Eric, thanks very much for joining us. Merrick, thank you for your time as well, sir. Oh, pleasure. Thanks thank you. Er- thank you. Eric Ortz from here at the Wharton School. Merrick Masters from uh, Wayne State University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.